We have quite the passage this morning. It's interesting, I don't know if uh, any book on stepping into a new lead pastor role has ever in the history of church writing recommended your first message. Daniel 9, <laughs> 24 to 27. I was laughing this week about that. And, and also laughing at um, some comments my father made last Sunday involving uh, my tendency to drink juice while I'm preaching. So, so unfortunately, I do not have six cases to hand out to you this morning, but, but I will try to drink just a little bit and then maybe I can give this to Josh and we can just kind of pass this around. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Well, I am by no means a Star Wars junkie. Please don't think that. I'm really not. But, but after hearing some really good reviews of, of Rogue One, I finally got around to seeing it this month. Okay, how many of you have gone to see Rogue One? Yeah, some. Okay. Well, if you're not familiar with the plot, uh, don't worry. Um, it's basically the story of how some good guys steal the plans for a planet-destroying weapon from some bad guys. Isn't that like the, the plot line of every action movie that's, that's ever been invented? <laughs> And they try to blow it up before it's too late, okay? So, so the heroine of the movie is a girl named Jen, and she's helped by a, a rebel alliance, that's the good guys, officer named Cassian. And Jen and Cassian capture the Death Star plans in the middle of this massive battle scene, and they begin working feverishly to transmit the plans into outer space, hoping that the rebel alliance, the good guys, manage to pick up the signal. And... And you could say that the movie is not exactly rich in dialogue. But at the pivotal moment, a Cassian says this to Jen. Do you think anybody's listening? I do, says Jen. Someone's out there. Well, Cassian, of course, you know, he kind of embodies this hardened skepticism of experience, right? And, and Jen, his foil, is, of course, the paradigm of the hopeful expectations of youth. And if you've seen the movie, you know that Jen's assumption proves accurate. The transmission gets through. There was, in fact, someone out there. And I think that that brief exchange between Cassian and Jen captures... These are the things that happen to you when you're a pastor and you're watching movies, okay? I, I think that captures one of the challenges that we can have when it comes to prayer. I really do. If, if we're being honest, there are moments when we wonder, is, is anybody listening? You know, you, you pray for a spouse, but you're still single. You pray for a baby, but but you can't get pregnant. You ask for healing, but, but you're still sick. You're, you're praying that your child would make wise choices, but they don't. Nothing's changed. Is anybody listening? Well, friends, the second part of Daniel 9 gives us a better answer 
than someone's out there. Okay? Gives us a better answer than someone's out there. It reminds us that the Lord delights to answer our prayers for mercy. So if the, if the first half of Daniel 9 proves that the righteousness of God compels a persistent prayer for mercy, the second half of Daniel 9 proves that a covenant-keeping God delights to answer our prayers for mercy. However, his perfect work takes longer than we think, longer than we prefer, and yet it is always better than we can imagine. Okay, that's, that's Daniel 9, all right? The Lord delights to answer our persistent pleas for mercy, yet his perfect work takes longer than we think or prefer, and at the same time, it's better than we can imagine, okay? That's Daniel 9. So point number one, the Lord delights to answer our prayers for mercy. Let's start there, all right? We need to remember why Daniel's praying in the first place, okay? It's been a couple weeks, so you need to remember the Israelites are living in exile because they refused to submit to the voice of God. Okay, they disobeyed for centuries despite persistent warnings from the prophets. So the Lord punished Israel by giving them over to the Babylonians. But in Babylon, Daniel remembers, he's a Jew, the words of the prophet Jeremiah, who said that after 70 years, the Lord would relent from judgment and bring his people home to Jerusalem, Jeremiah 29. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Okay, so get this. Daniel takes God at his word. God said it. It's true. So he prays in the first part of Daniel 9, essentially asking God for two things. He's saying, Lord, would you grant us two things? Would you grant us a return from Babylon and a return to right relationship with you? That's basically his prayer. Lord, grant us a return from Babylon and a return to right relationship with you. Both of those prayers are necessary because remember, it was the breakdown in their relationship with God that got them in trouble and landed them in Babylon in the first place, right? I, I love how Gentry and Wellam note this, arguing it's one thing to get the people out of Babylon. It's another thing to get Babylon out of the people. So Daniel's praying for this and an angel named Gabriel appears. I don't regularly have that experience. <laughs> Praying, an angel shows up, but Daniel did. Verse 22, chapter 9. Oh, Daniel, I've now come to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. And I've come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Brenda, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I hope you hear his heart toward you in those words. Think, think about it. When, when did God's word of response to Daniel's prayer for mercy go out? Okay, what was it after Daniel covered all his bases? 
You know, he, he mixed a little adoration with a little confession. He worked in a note of thanksgiving at just the right point, And then he sort of wrapped it all up with some beautiful prayers of supplication. And on the heels of that, the Lord acted. The Lord responded. Well, no, that wasn't the case. When, when did the Lord's word of response go out? At the beginning of his pleas. Note that. As soon as Daniel started to pray, God listened, right? As, as soon as Daniel started to pray, God heard. If you would, a word from the mouth of Daniel prompted a word from the mouth of God. That's crazy. To which I think a lot of us just conclude, well, surprise, surprise. <laughs> of course, Daniel had a hotline to headquarters, right? I mean, he's what? He's a crazy Old Testament, dream interpreting, scripture writing, super holy dude. You know, we just think of these people like that. Of course, God listened to him. Not so with me. I mean, unlike me, Daniel had plenty of time to work his way up to the front of the prayer line, right? I mean, he'd been praying like three times a day toward Jerusalem on his face for decades. And and the scripture doesn't say this. I'm quite sure he was one of those guys who got up at 4 a.m. every morning to spend three hours praying with no coffee necessary before he went into work. (laughs) You know, we think like that. That must be the reason. God spoke when Daniel prayed. Well, that's not the reason. It's not the reason. Look look at verse 23. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. Why? For you are greatly loved. Greatly loved. Hear that, friend. It's, It's not the length or completeness of your prayer that merits God's attention. It's his affection for you as your heavenly father. Know that. It's it's not the length or or completeness of your prayer that that merits God's attention. It's his affection for you as your heavenly father. God didn't love Daniel in 538 BC any more than he loves his children today. No more. 1 John 4. And this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we've come to know and believe the love that God has for us. And friend, because God loves you and because he proved his love for you by dying on the cross for you, you can know this, that the Lord delights to answer your prayers for mercy no less than Daniel's. No less. 1 John 5. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if who? Daniel? No. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request we have asked of him. Okay, what's the point? God was eager to answer Daniel's prayer for mercy because he loved Daniel. And if you were in Christ, he loves you too. He loves you too. Which means this. 
When we pray to our Heavenly Father, we ought to pray with great confidence. Great confidence. Okay, not, not because we're confident in our confidence or confident in our faith, but confident in the faithful love of our Father. That, that's how we should pray. Matthew 7, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? We need to see that at the beginning of God's response that the Lord delighted to answer Daniel's prayer for mercy because he loved him. It had nothing to do with the quality and all the dots of Daniel's prayer. It was simply driven by the heart of his affectionate father. Hear hear that, church. The Lord delights to answer our prayers for mercy, but... That's not always easy. That's not always easy. Why why do I say that? Well, this is the second point. We'll linger here for a little while. His perfect work takes longer than we prefer. It takes longer than we prefer. You know, remember that, that Daniel thinks that God's about to wrap up the exile and and fulfill all these promises that he's made, Isaiah, Jeremiah, about the Lord changing the hearts of his people and and making right all the exiles made wrong. You know, you can just hear Daniel praise God, 70 years are about up. That's a long time, but they're almost over, okay? But then Gabriel says this, look at verse 24. 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. I mean, if I'm Daniel, I'm thinking, say what? (laughs) I mean, God, I thought... After 70 years, which by the way, I know you're eternal in some way that I'm not, okay, I get that, but I thought after 70 years, which is a long time in my mind, you were going to get this whole redemption party started. You can feel that. That's his prayer. To which God responds, well, Daniel, yes and no. Yes and no. What what do I mean by that? Well, Well, God says, I'm about to answer your prayer in part. Okay, so, so King Cyrus is about to issue a word to restore and build the physical city of Jerusalem. That happened within the next year. Okay, so that's amazing. Your people are going to get to go home, Daniel. The physical exile is about to end. But Daniel, the rest of this is going to take a lot longer. Okay, remember, what were the two issues? To get the people out of Babylon, and what? To get Babylon out of the people, right? Daniel, the spiritual battle isn't over yet. And in fact, it's not going to be finished for another 70 weeks, or 70 sets of seven. Now, why do I say 
listening carefully, 70 sets of seven and not just 70 weeks. Okay? Well, it's because the Hebrew word translated weeks in verse 24 doesn't necessarily mean seven weeks, seven days, seven months, seven years. It simply means a set of seven. Okay? There may be a footnote in your Bible that points that out. 77s. Okay? So the Bible translators use the word weeks because that's a decent way in English to capture this idea of a sevenfold length of time. Okay? Now, you need to know that faithful Bible scholars have disagreed for centuries <laughs> over how to interpret this verse. Okay? But I believe in keeping with many of them that it's best to take these 77s, 70 weeks, symbolically. Okay? That's my assertion as I've studied this. So why do I, why do I say that? Well, three reasons. Okay? First, I think that a symbolic interpretation here is the best way to understand a lot of the other numbers that we've already seen in these visions that have come up in the book of Daniel, which Daniel alludes to in verse 21. Second, if you, if you read broadly in your Bible, anytime you get to these sections of what they call apocalyptic or, or end times literature, like the book of Revelation, numbers are almost always symbolic. And third, okay, and this is the most important reason in my opinion, the immediate context of this 70-year exile in Babylon is explicitly symbolic. Okay, so I just I want to help us for a minute think about well, why did God pick 70 years? Well, what's up with that, okay? Well, here's a little bit of background. Every seven years, Israel was supposed to take a break from farming. Okay, some of you may remember that, supposed to take a break from farming. And this was crazy. God promised that he would provide enough harvest in the sixth year for them to eat until the ninth year. He promised that. Okay, it was both good for the land for them to rest, and more importantly, it was a critical expression of trust that God is our provider, not farmer. Okay, God's the one who provides for me. That was the point of the Sabbath year. But Israel didn't do that. She didn't, she didn't keep the Sabbath year. She kept right on farming. And, and 2 Chronicles 36 tells us that the number of years of exile in Babylon symbolized the number of Sabbath years that Israel failed to keep in the land. Okay? Second Chronicles 36. Look at this with me. Nebuchadnezzar took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, note, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. For as the Lord declared in Leviticus 26, as long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest. What, what rest? The rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. Okay? So, follow me here. 
if the 70 years of exile are a symbolic time period representing the roughly 70 sabbatical cycles that Israel failed to keep Sabbath, then we have a context in which it makes a lot of sense to interpret the very next number, the 77s, in a similar symbolic way. Okay? So I want to look more closely at what this period of 77 symbolizes here in just a minute. But, but I first want to make a very practical application here. Okay? Daniel's praying, and he expects an immediate answer from the Lord. How many of you have ever done that? Okay, my hand's up, because I, I do that all the time, right? I pray, expect an immediate answer from the Lord. And, and God gives him an immediate answer, right? Part of the answer is, a word's about to go out to restore and build Jerusalem. Cyrus does that. But another part of the answer is that Israel's going to have to wait a much longer period of time until all the promises in verse 24 will be fulfilled. That's a much longer time than the 70 years Daniel's been expecting. So what's the application? What's the point? I think it's this, friends. God doesn't work on our timetable. God does not work on our timetable. His perfect work takes longer than we think. Longer than we prefer. You know, I I don't think you have to look far to notice that that that's true in our lives today as well. Right? The, The Lord delights to answer when we as his people cry out for mercy in our in our workplaces, in our homes, in our neighborhood, in our marriage, in our kids, in our own hearts. He delights to answer. He hears our prayers. Delights to answer our prayers because he loves us passionately, but he doesn't always work on our timetable. We see what? <laughs> but he doesn't. Which, which means two things, okay? First, it means we must not hold God hostage to doing what we want him to do when we want him to do it. Don't do that. Okay, we, we should be very reluctant to conclude, reading Daniel 9, that God has failed to answer our prayers. Or that his slowness to answer means that there's something wrong with our prayer. Very reluctant to conclude that. Okay? And second, we must refuse to believe the lie that somehow because God is slow or seems slow in answering our prayers, that that must mean that he doesn't love me as much as the dude next door who got his prayer answered overnight. Does that make sense? We need to be slow to do that. Daniel was greatly loved. And yet... God said to that man he greatly loved, Daniel, I want you to wait. Friend, if in your mind, being loved by God cannot equal God saying to you, I want you to wait, then perhaps your concept of who God is does not agree with the God of the Bible. God loves 
you. And sometimes it is because God loves us that in response to our prayers, which he immediately hears and delights in as our father, that he responds to those prayers by saying, son, daughter, Daniel, I want you to wait. I want you to wait. His perfect work often takes longer than we prefer. And, And in that, in that simple phrase, 70 weeks, 77s, there's an implicit call to patient endurance. Patient endurance that we need to take to heart, okay? The Lord delights to answer our prayers for mercy. His perfect work takes longer than we think, longer than we prefer. Point number three, but his perfect work is better than we can imagine. Okay? Review, the Lord delights to answer our prayers for mercy. His perfect work usually takes longer than we think or prefer, yet his perfect work is better than we can imagine. Okay, verse 24, look back at this. It doesn't just tell us that God's work is longer than we think. It also reminds us that it's always worth the wait. Please hear that. It's longer than we think, but it's always worth the wait. I mean, think about this. Gabriel didn't say to Daniel, hey, Daniel, you thought 70 years, you know, psych out. It's going to be 77. Sorry, pal. So just sit tight, chill out, and why don't you shut up? No. No, what did he do? He said, Daniel, Daniel, you're thinking 70 years. Really, pal, this is going to take a lot longer. But Daniel, let me give you promises very specific promises that can sustain your hope and joy while you wait. I mean, is that just so kind of God, friends? He, he, he has every right to just say to us, okay, listen, you've been heard, time to wait. Next! He doesn't do that. If he says wait, he gives us promises to cling to that help us wait. Okay, so let's, let's look at these promises, all right? We're going to linger on verse 24 here, just a couple minutes. First, Gabriel promises Daniel that it will take 70 weeks to finish the transgression. What, what, what's Gabriel saying with that? I could preach a whole sermon on this, but, but in essence, I think he's saying, Daniel, check this out. There's a limit to the human acts of evil and transgression that God will sovereignly allow to occur. There's a limit to that. Okay, every every one of us, please hear this, is accountable to God for our sin. That includes the person who right now is sinning against you. Okay, every one of us is accountable to God for our sin, including the person who right now is sinning against you, okay? But they're not ultimately in charge. That person who's sinning against you, friend, a person who sinned against you in the past and it feels like the impact of their sin has just governed the entire rest of your life. Hear this. They are not ultimately in charge. God's in charge. God's in charge. Which means that we persist in sin both as long as we please and at the same time, not a moment longer than God allows us to. Both. Don't pick, okay? We persist in sin both as long as we please. And at the same time, neither our sin nor the other other people's sin against us never endures one minute longer than God allows it to. 
Well, how do we know that? How do we know that? Well, because of the second promise. Second promise. What's that? A day is coming when the Lord will what? Will put an end to sin. Put an end to sin. Okay, well, when is that going to happen? When's that going to happen? When the Lord returns to usher in the new heavens and the new earth. Listen, the holy city that Daniel understood and prayed for in his own day as the physical city of Jerusalem. In the book of Daniel, that functions as a symbol of a type, a foreshadow, as it were, of the new heavens and the new earth. That's how it works in the book of Daniel, okay? And that new heavens and new earth get described, that, that new Jerusalem, symbolically in Revelation 21. Hear this, they will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. But nothing unclean, no sin, will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. In Revelation 22, no longer will there be anything accursed, no more sin, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Okay, so, so this is amazing. And, and this is where we see proof that though God's work takes longer than we think or prefer, it's always better than we can imagine, okay? So follow this. Daniel prays for a temporal end to the sin of Israel that would enable her to return to a physical land. He prays for that, okay? God answers by promising an eternal end to the sin of the world, all right? Remember, what's Daniel praying for? A temporal end to the sin of Israel, one little people group, to get them home to one little place. What does God promise? Daniel, I hear your prayer, and this is going to take a little longer, pal, because what I'm up to is saving the entire world. That's what I'm doing. You don't get that, Daniel. But in answer, in doing that, I'm going to answer your prayer. I'm, I'm going to answer your prayer in a way that you would have never dreamed possible. going to end the sin of the world and enable men and women from every tribe and every tongue and every language to return and enjoy the paradise of Eden. Which begs the question, Lord, how are you going to do that? How are you going to end sin? We'll look back at verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin. How's that going to go down? To atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. You know what everlasting righteousness promises? It's a promise that the people of God will never have to go into exile again. That's the promise. That's the promise. Daniel I'm going to bring your people home to Jerusalem. But I'm going to see you and raise you infinitely more and bring men and women from every tribe home to heaven through an everlasting righteousness. Well, how's that going to happen? How are you going to do that, God? Well, the prophet Isaiah tells us. Isaiah 53. He speaks to the anointed one, the Messiah. He was oppressed. and He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered, look, notice these words, that he was cut off out of the land of the living. 
stricken for the transgression of my people. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Brothers and sisters, it's through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we are given an everlasting righteousness. That's what the prophet Isaiah is pointing to here. Now, now how, you should be thinking this as I read that, how do I know that that preacher man is not taking Isaiah 53 and reading that back into Daniel 9? Because he likes to read Isaiah 53 and it preaches well. You should be asking that, okay? Well, here's why. Daniel makes an explicit connection to Isaiah 53 in verses 25 and 26. That's why when I read Isaiah 53, I lingered on that phrase, the Messiah shall be cut off. And I'm going to read from the New American Standard here because I think the way they translate 25 and 26 is really helpful. Gabriel says, So you are to know and discern from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress, then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. So who's Gabriel talking about in verse 26? He's talking about Jesus, right? That the Messiah who would be cut off and have nothing that our iniquity might be atoned for and we might have everlasting righteousness. Okay, you, you can't escape the sense in these verses that Daniel's prayer was too small. Think about that. You know, it, it wasn't too small because he didn't believe that God wouldn't answer his prayer for mercy, but, but it was too small in the sense that God's response far exceeded the borders of Daniel's prayer. It's like Daniel prays and God says, oh yeah, you bet I'm going to answer that. And then he just shatters the walls of the prayer. Infinitely more than Daniel could ask or imagine. Why? Well, because as Paul says, all the promises of God find their yes in Christ Jesus. Okay, so in verse 24, you have this picture of sealing, Gabriel says, both vision and prophet. What's that described? The, the perfect fulfillment of God's redemptive plan. Okay, that's all that's about. Perfect fulfillment, soon to come, Daniel. And that anticipates this salvation that God's going to accomplish, end of 24, by anointing a most holy place. Now, this is amazing. This is an example of why so often we just need to slow down when we read our Bibles, okay? Typically, when the Bible refers to the act of anointing, it refers to a person. But the language of a holy place recalls the temple, the holy of holies where God dwelt by his spirit. So, so what do we have here? We have a verb associated with a person and a location associated with the dwelling place of God's spirit. What does that sound like? An anointed person who also happens to be the dwelling place of God's spirit. 
Well, that sounds like Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 1, look at that. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Do you know those are the exact words that in Luke 4, Jesus read from Isaiah. And when he read those words, he sat down and he said, today that scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's amazing. I'm the anointed one. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm the incarnate one from Daniel 9 on whom the spirit of the Lord supremely rests. And it's through my work and my ministry that the eternal year of jubilee foretold by the prophet Isaiah will come to pass. Okay, now here's what I want to make one more connection. Matthew, why did you say jubilee? That's sort of a weird word. Well, let me explain, okay? Remember I said that the time periods in Daniel 9 are symbolic. Well, we know from the reference to the Messiah who is cut off that the first 69 weeks captures the time from Daniel's day to the first coming of Christ. That's how we know that, okay? Which means the last week, the 70th week, the final week, captures the time from the first coming of Christ to the return of Christ when all the promises in verse 24 will be fulfilled, okay? That means we're living in the 70th week, which is what the Apostle Peter describes in Acts 2 as the last days, okay? So all that to say, there's a sense in which these promises in verse 24 of God's redemptive salvation, they've already been fulfilled in the first coming of Christ. But there's another sense in which we're waiting for them to be consummated, completely fulfilled with the second coming of Christ. Okay, so why, why then, does Gabriel describe this time from Daniel's day to the second coming of Christ as a period of 77s or 70 weeks? Why in the world does he do that? I mean, could you have picked another simple God? Well, perhaps, but I think the key is found in Leviticus 25. And I want you to know, church, that that in lingering here and making these connections, um, we're doing hard Bible work, okay? That's good, because the same God put this Bible together. And he helps us as we make connections, okay? So, So look at what God told Israel in Leviticus 25. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound a loud trumpet on the 10th day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a year of jubilee for you. When each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. What was the year of jubilee for Israel? Okay, well, in a nutshell, it meant 
all debts forgiven, all wrongs made right, all land restored. It was basically a foretaste of heaven. Okay, it was a year of rejoicing in the Lord's redemption. So when Daniel prays for redemption, and Gabriel says to Daniel, Daniel, it's going to take 70 weeks, 77s, what does that tell us? What was a promise to Daniel? And friend, this, this is an immeasurably great promise to you. That a year of jubilee is coming. That's what it said. Only, it's not going to be a normal jubilee. It's going to be a tenfold jubilee. An eternal jubilee. All, all the promises in verse 24 come true in that jubilee. And all made possible because of the work of the Messiah, the anointed one, whose work takes longer than we think, but is more glorious than we can imagine. Okay? So what's the application? What's the point here for today? Well, I would simply warn you, don't take God's delay in answering your prayers as a sign that he's not at work in your life or at work in your world. Don't do that. Okay, more, more often than not, what, what to us feels like an excruciatingly long delay that just reflects the fact that we can't see the whole picture. We can't. God, God's ways are, are higher than our ways. We can't fully grasp the mystery of his will. Okay, but, but when it seems like, friend, that, that the gospels quit working, that, that the promises of God have just stopped coming true in your life and, and that your prayers are just hitting this glass ceiling, no response, well, that's the moment. That's the moment when we have to remember the lesson of Daniel 9, that God's perfect work takes longer than we think, but it's better than we can imagine. Okay, so as you head into 2017, don't limit or restrict God's work to what you can see or understand. Don't do that. Don't do that. Daniel prayed for the restoration of Jerusalem and a return from physical exile. And God answered that prayer by fixing Daniel's gaze on the hope of the Jerusalem that is to come and a return from spiritual exile. So it wasn't like God didn't care about Daniel's immediate situation. Okay? He did. He did. But he was up to something far bigger, far greater than Daniel could imagine. And it was that eternal purpose, that future answer, that God through Gabriel said, Daniel, I want you to fix your eyes on that and find your hope in what's to come. Because it was going to be a long wait. It's going to be a long wait. Church life in this 70th week, in conclusion, is really hard. Really hard. You know, in verse 26, Gabriel foretells the destruction of the Jewish temple. 70 AD, war and desolations followed for the Jewish people. You know, but, but like the suffering inflicted by that, that little horn of the third kingdom in Daniel 8, the beast of the fourth kingdom of Daniel 7, all of that served in these visions as, as a type, as a symbol of the kings and kingdoms of this world that are going to continue opposing the people of God 
until the end of the age. You know, during these last days, we need to be aware that Satan himself, the the antitype of this this prince who is to come, in verse 26, he's he's at work all around you. You know, he's, he's tempting us to make a strong covenant with his kingdom. To live as slaves to sin, to, to chase the, the pleasures and possessions of this world that, that offer a momentary sedative, but ultimately it's just a sedative on the road to hell. And even now, for a limited time, the Lord allows the evil one to, to oppress his people, to do everything he can to stamp out the worship of God, to put an end to sacrifice and offering. And it's worth noting that in both Mark 13 and 2 Thessalonians 2, both Jesus and the Apostle Paul use these descriptions of, of persecution and evil inflicted on the people of God in verse 27. This one who makes desolate as a, as a foreshadow of the Antichrist. He will rise up at the end of the world to oppress God's people and yet is even now at work in the world in the spirits of those who do not confess the name of Jesus. Daniel 9 promises that on the final day, a decreed end, verse 27, will be poured out on the desolator. Evil will be punished and King Jesus will carry the field. As we've seen all over and over and over again in Daniel. But until that day, church, remember this. The Lord is eager to answer your pleas for mercy. And remember that as he answers, though his perfect work takes longer than we think, it's always worth the wait. Let's pray. Father, there is so much in here that brings good news. This is one of those places in your word where we really feel like we're, we're mining for gold. Father, I pray that if nothing else, what you have spoken to us this morning would teach us to wait well. And Lord, I specifically ask as we prepare to sing and then share the Lord's Supper, that you would help those of us who very much relate to what I said at the beginning. Who feel like they're praying, but they're getting no answer. And heaven seems silent. I pray you would bring comfort right now to these words in Daniel 9 that you always hear but many times you say wait. But you only say wait because you were doing something far greater, far more beautiful than we could ever imagine. Lord, I need your help to believe that. We need your help to trust that. And I pray you would increase our faith now as we sing. In Jesus' name.